847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's career, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. On this episode, I'm joined by David Das, who is a talented composer of film, TV, trailers, commercials, and games. He is also president of the Academy of Scoring Arts, a nonprofit organization uh, which gathers together uh, those in the industry to uh, sort of promote the creative and technical process of scoring visual media. Um, just a quick note uh, that at a few brief moments in this episode, um, you may hear some small electronic glitches in the sound. Um, they don't obscure too much, um, and, uh, and hopefully I'll prevent this from occurring again. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And I'm, I speak as a fan of the, of the podcast. I've listened to many episodes myself. And oh, thanks. I love it from, from, a, uh, from the film music perspective of seeing how, um, how you look at film music. Yeah. And, um, gosh, I've learned a lot. So. Oh, thanks. I, 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 yeah. here. <laughs> well, it definitely is. You know, it's one of those things in terms of hopefully it's, it's interesting and, and entertaining at the same time. And, you know, I usually just try to make sure I get my facts right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good in this day and age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but tell me a little bit of, I, I, I just want to get some clarification on your background as far as, um, you know, as far as music is, is concerned. Sure. Sure. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I was a born musician before I knew what I was doing. Um, I started playing uh, piano or keyboards when I was, uh, I don't know, three, four, five, somewhere in there. And um, I always just assumed everyone heard music the way I did. Uh, I remember being in fifth grade and thinking to myself, well, I'm sure by the time I'm in sixth grade, I'll have an album out. Um, and I also I also grew up with perfect pitch, and I assumed everyone else knew that. Like when you hear a C, oh, of course that's a C. And I was kind of shocked when, oh, not everybody knows that. So I grew up making music. Uh, my dad was is a, a hobbyist musician. Um, we had musical instruments in the house. I was always playing. And then I was also fortunate in my formative years, specifically in junior high and high school, to have some teachers who really let me uh, let me fly. Um, I had one key junior high teacher when I was in seventh grade. Um, he led me in doing my first arrangement for wind ensemble. Oh. Um, it was the school spirit week. And that, that year, the theme was Caribbean. And he was like, I don't know, I don't have any Caribbean music the band could play. And somehow, I don't remember the specifics of the conversation, but he led me to arrange a Caribbean piece for the Wind Ensemble. And I, to this day, I still remember that sheer moment of terror as, as he raised the baton and he was about to start the downbeat of the first rehearsal of the arrangement I had done. So for me, as I don't remember how old I was, 11 or 12, to hear my peers play the notes that I had written on that page and like figure out, is this going to work? What's it going to sound like? And, you know, it, it, I mean, it wasn't the greatest arrangement ever, but it was a start. Um, really got your feet. Totally. In, you know, well, that lit the spark yeah. because okay. once that was done and it went fine, it went pretty well and they did perform it publicly. Um, suddenly I was like, oh, I got to be doing this. So I arranged more things in junior high. And then when I got into high school, I got into a lot more choral arranging, singing and directing. Um, so I had a very formative high school teacher as well who did similar things for me in, in a choral realm. So uh, I had great teachers along the way is, is what, what that I helps. To. And, and opportunities to try things because there's nothing like writing music for ensembles or and, and having the benefit of hearing them performed um, right off the bat. So you, so you start to get a feel for what works, what doesn't. Why would you write this way for an instrument or that way? Um, it's kind of like a sixth sense you develop about, oh, that's how you write for the instrument. Right. What is its range? You know, never writing something that's out of its range if it's sure. a horn or, or a string instrument, that sure. kind of thing. Range, articulation, um, expressiveness. Um, different instruments do different things in different parts of their range or if they're played in a certain way. And just having firsthand uh, experience doing that kind of stuff. Uh, for me, it happened real early. So... Um, that lit the spark for me. And that's pretty much what I've been doing the rest of my life ever since I got beyond that point. Wow. To jump ahead, like, 
you know, decades. I'm wondering, like, when it comes to composing music now and having to use um, samples, um, you know, and anything that's that synthesizer, like, how, you know, that gave you the background to know, like, even if you're writing for sampled instruments, um, to uh, to know what the range is. Because I've heard from other, whether it's it's different people in the industry, that sometimes there are people who don't have that background and they'll write with samples for, and you couldn't technically play it. Like whatever they wrote right. really right. wouldn't be played by right. a string instrument. I don't know if you, you know, um, ran into any difficulty with writing for sampled. Um, writing for samples is a cousin to writing for the real instrument. Um, there are certain things you can make the samples do that a real instrument could not. And also vice versa. There's things real instruments can do that are just never emulated by samples. So they're cousins of each other. So I think as long as, um, as long as you come to it realizing, yeah, it's an instrument. It's just a slightly different kind of instrument. Most people play samples from keyboards. Mm -hmm. um, so keyboards are very, by their design, are a completely different approach than, say, a wind instrument or a stringed instrument where you're dragging a bow across a string. Mm -hmm. The mechanics are different. Um, you know, you hit a drum with a drumstick, and that that drumstick bounces off the drum skin, whereas on a keyboard, that key stays down for as long as you care to press it. And if you wanted to play something really short, it still takes some milliseconds for it to pop back up, right? Unlike a drum. So the mechanics of the instruments are a little bit different. And I mean, samples are an approximation of what the real thing can do. I mean, at this at this point in history, you can do a lot with samples. You can you can pretty much program a nearly fully realistic orchestra if you wish or anything else so it's not so much a limitation it's just a slightly different instrument to learn to play and i think if you have a background in the real thing it helps you in the sample thing and you know if they're if they're youngsters growing up who have never written for real instruments but are, have grown up on samples they'll probably have a little bit of a an adjustment phase coming to the real thing yeah but it's not insurmountable i, th I think they're, we're in, they're in the same ballpark well, and, and so you started doing the arranging, and then when did you get into like composing original um, original music? Um, I had been record uh, pretty much f since I was in elementary school. Okay, I was writing <laughs> songs and stuff. Um, my stylistic development um, when I was a young kid, it was just songs, pop songs, that kind of stuff. And then when I was about twelve or thirteen, I discovered Rhapsody in Blue, Gershwin. Ah. And that changed my life because it was that that uh, it was that mashup. We would call it a mashup today. It wasn't back then, of the classical genre with the pop of the day, jazz. Um, and when I heard that, like I, I went a little bit nuts. got obsessed with that piece. I learned it. I was um, about 11 or 12. Yeah, 12 or 13 maybe. Um, I learned Rhapsody in Blue. I arranged it for my school orchestra to play so I could play the piano part. Um, and I was kind of obsessed with that. And at that point, that started my transition into a more serious side of music. I got a, a serious classical piano teacher, which I hadn't had before. And she started educating me on the, the classics. It was mm -hmm. the first time I played Bach and Beethoven and, and um, Chopin and things like that. Uh, this was all in high school. Um, and 
that started to pivot my life. It was always, it's always been in music, but it started to pivot me more in a classical direction, so much so that by the time I finished high school, I, my life had pivoted to the point where I wanted to be a classical music guy. I wanted to be the next Bernstein. I wanted to compose and conduct and play the piano, that, that trifecta, which mm-hmm. he's legendary for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I went to school for. So I, I did a degree in classical music with uh, choral emphasis. And um, I thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. And then my life took different turns. Um, I got involved. I moved to Nashville after college. I did a lot of touring in the pop music world. Um, and then I got more into the production and arranging side of things, recording. And that's really where the, the technology started to be capable of doing that stuff at the home level. Like for us to have a home studio where you can produce fully fledged recordings. That's about where that intersected with me. Um, so I did, I did a bunch of that. And then uh, 13 years ago, I moved out to L.A. It was 2005. And that's really where all these different pieces of my life started to coalesce. Uh, the, the pop and song background, the jazz, the classical music, it's all started to coalesce because the way to um, use those skills in the modern world is in media. It's in film, it's in TV, games, trailers, that kind of stuff. So right. um, that's really when I started to kind of feel like all these pieces were coming together and uh, and I can make a career out of this, uh, you know, to also just in addition to just the, um, the logistical part of life of making life work, just that I'm moving forward as an artist and as a person and that the music that is in me to write. And, and I say that because I feel like I was born a musician. I never considered any other career path. I had to do this, um, because this is really the only thing I was ever focused on, um, for when I was a kid. So, um, I feel kind of innately there's stuff in me that I need to write. I don't know what it is yet. I'm, I discover it as I as I go through my life, but I, I feel a responsibility to be true to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to whatever was placed in me and all the the, the abilities and the experiences that I had. I want to put them to good use, mm-hmm. you know, so I can look back at the end of my life and say, yeah, I did. I wrote some cool stuff. I, you know, hopefully, hopefully it touched people and um, made for some interesting fun or. Uh, some some good projects. That's fantastic. Yeah, and, and I you know I'm sure that like encompasses like different genres or different challenges musically. I mean, do you do you, I guess I guess it seems like it's not even a conscious thing that you are aware of in terms of like challenging yourself to write in like something different as far as genre or uh, style. Absolutely. Um, well, when I when I arrived here in L.A., I got connected almost by accident with a, a group of music supervisors. Um, and I somehow found myself on these pitch lists. So I would get emails all the time, like I'm talking dozens a week, like, hey, we're urgently looking for a piece of music in this style for this kind of a project. Um, do you have anything? Can you write anything? I need it in here within the next couple hours Jeez. or at, at best the next morning. Um, usually they're, they're always very quick turnaround things. And, um, you know, any day I was at home with nothing to do, I'd be like, I'll give it a shot, you know, and I did that for years. Um, and I think that uh, that helped with another part of the the craft, which is um, I didn't have a whole lot of time to think about this. Uh, it's like, OK, we need something that sounds like this band or this mm-hmm. composer. And so I would run to YouTube, listen to some snippets of what they were going for, just so I could figure out stylistically what ballpark we're in i'd be listening for things like instrumentation Mm -hmm. um what instruments are they using tempos fast slow uh, keys major minor pacing uh writing style melodies drones whatever it was that made that piece of music work sometimes they would give me uh, a bit of video sometimes there'd be none so i would always look at the video and think okay what belongs here and because of the short deadline it's like, okay, it's time to start writing. I got, I got to get to work here because it's due in a couple hours or it's due by the next morning or whatever it is. And um, I learned really quick to trust my instincts. Right. Not everything I wrote was was fantastic. There are some jewels from that time in my life. But um, just that practice of uh, here's the assignment, here's the deadline, go. Yeah. And you don't have time to do the, too much background research. You need to start writing music that fits the client's brief. And at some point the deadline sort of bypasses inspiration or inspiration runs out and the deadline hits you and you're like, I just got to like get these last eight bars in or something. Absolutely. Or? Absolutely. <laughs> I remember vividly there was this one that I did. The deadline was midnight and it was, they wanted a pop song in the style of uh, a popular band. And I called a buddy of mine who's a, who's a great writer, Brandon Rogers. 
and we were burning literally the midnight oil to the point where we had the vibe down. We had some of the background track done, um, but we didn't have all the lyrics fleshed out. And I said to him, Brandon, we've got 15 minutes left. You go write some lyrics. I'm going to mix the song. And we're going to record the vocal at 11.55 so we can send it in by 12 or 11.59. And that's exactly what we did. Wow. And it's like whatever we came up with is what we came up with. And, wow. you know, it's a classic reality show. Time's up. You know, right. buzzer, buzzer goes and that's all you, you have time for. Pencils down. Pencils <laughs> down. And it's actually one of my favorite songs I've ever written. So It's so funny. The, it's interesting. The, the, the not second guessing. Um, I, I mean, I, I've read a lot of stories as far as like um, film composers, like only being, you know, as far as like a big movie, they come in and like, well, we have um, two weeks. Uh, there was one uh, composer, Ellie Goldenthal, who wrote an uh, interview with the vampire mm-hmm. and the, the Neil Jordan movie in 94. And the original score had been um, had been rejected. And there was another score that was written for it. So they're like, we have two weeks and he had to come in, but it was a thing where, like, I can't have any second guessing. And the movie was at least cut and locked, but everything they wrote, it just laying in as he wrote it. So there wasn't any any chance for, like, well, let's go back to the scene and rework it. It was like, whatever you get from me, you have to put in. <laughs> right. And I thought that was kind of like, there's no, yeah, it's just interesting to not second guess and you just let it, the inspiration flow out. And then it just winds up on with the picture. And then there you go. Yep. <laughs> it served me really well now, even if I'm not working to a tight deadline, because I've kind of separated that thought process of, okay, I need to come up with some ideas. I come up with the ideas. Now I need to execute the ideas, which which means recording the instruments. It means mixing it. It means any kind of blend or any, all that kind of stuff. Um, and even if there's not a lot of time, I've kind of I've learned to trust my instinct. I know that when I sit down at my keyboard, I'm going to come up with ideas. I, I'm still I'm always fuzzy on where those ideas come from, except that. When I, especially when I see picture, or at least if I have a brief, um, something starts developing in my head. It's like, mm-hmm. all right, let's play that. And then when I have that, I know what to do with it. I know how to develop it, so I can record it and I can mix it and deliver it, or or develop it as a composition and then ship it. The only difference is if I'm not working on a tight deadline, I have more time to refine, which is nice. Oh, refine in the mix, refine yeah. the instrumentation. That yeah, kind of exactly. Thing. Um, is your mindset any different as far as like a commercial? versus a trailer versus like a narrative, something with a, a you know, film TV kind of project. Because hmm. I know with a trailer, it's like it's it has to kind of punch you upside the head or something and, and get you in the gut in, in a minute and a half or sometimes less, mm-hmm. you know. And so is your is your mindset any different than like, I actually have to score this scene where these two people are talking and they have a revelation or there's some sort of epiphany? I suppose it's a, just a different style of music. Um, you're right. Trailer music is very uh, visceral. We have to make you feel something quickly, and we have to take you somewhere in the matter of seconds because then we're gonna have a cliffhanger yeah. that takes you on a left turn after that. And um, <laughs> it's very. Uh, some commercials can be like that too because you're in this compressed time frame where a lot has to happen. Um, as, assuming it's something where you're a theme is being developed and you're telling a story to get to the end. Um, not so with let's say drama writing for film where you're largely you're developing themes that become part of the characters of the movie um, but you're also weaving your way in and out around what's happening on on the picture Um, so if it's dialogue you're staying out of dialogue out of the way of dialogue right if it's an interlude where the music has to add something and there's no dialogue um, that's your opportunity for themes to to really come to the forefront and do their job so it's a difference of genre. I'm, I'm sure that there's many differences in approaches between the two, but to me, it's just like writing a different genre of music. Hmm. Um, you know, one day I'm writing a song, the next day I'm writing an orchestral cue, the next day I'm writing, you know, who knows what, jazz. Honky-tonk. Honky-tonk, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was, I guess, as far as those musical directions, film, TV, whatever, what was the most out-of-left-field like musical direction that you had to do, like use a kazoo or you know something <laughs> like that? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> I have had some crazy ones. I, I I can't think of any specific one that stands out as being ultra crazy, um, because I guess I've trained myself not to even think that way. It's like when when I get a brief in, or the, this is the project that needs doing, that that's my master. It's like, well, they want that, then I'm going to deliver that. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes it's a style that's not native to me. Like for example, I'm not really a hip hop guy. 
I, I can't, I couldn't do convincing hip hop. I can listen to a hip hop track. I can choose sounds that are similar to that. And mm-hmm. I could make you a piece of music that is quote hip hop, but I'm not a native hip hop guy. I would say the same of um, any kind of, let's say Spanish music. I, I, I play guitar, but not, uh, not extremely well. So to do anything that's like heavily guitar based like that, that, that requires a great deal of proficiency. It's not me. Mm-hmm. I can fake it, but I can't do it as someone who's <laughs> native to it. But outside of like a couple styles that I just really feel are would be very hard for me to imitate, um, anything else that crosses my path, it's my challenge to mm-hmm. find a way to do it. So I don't think of it in terms of like crazy. If if a client wants a kazoo piece with symphony orchestra and an interlude with you know whatever, you know, an air who, then that's, <laughs> then that's what I deliver. You know, and I will find some musical idea that um, that gets in the hole. That's amazing. Now, as far as like your the the classical music element, you know, so you you really kind of you know got into that classical music headspace after Rhapsody in Blue. Um, what were some of the other classical composers that also really appealed to you? I guess that kind of uh, spoke to you. Well, through that process, after I discovered Rhapsody in Blue, and then after I had that piano teacher that started teaching me the classics. Um, it, it was a little bit of that, you know, eat your meat and potatoes. I didn't always love Beethoven. I didn't always love Bach. And then over time, over years, I grew to love them. Um, so now, if I look back, and I have lots of, of favorites in the classical music sphere, even though it's a it's a completely different art to writing for media, which I, I can talk about separately in a second, but just speaking about classical music by itself, um, Boy, uh, there's so many I revere. I'm, I'm partial to the French school. I love oh. Debussy, Ravel, Faure. Um, I'm partial to the Americans. Um, Copeland, Gershwin, of course. Uh, Bernstein, uh, Randall Thompson, a kind of forgotten composer nowadays. Huh. Uh, William Grant Still, amazing. Uh, in the modern school, John Adams is one of my favorites. Right. Uh, there's there's so much. I, You know, back when we were talking about writing to brief and stuff, I, I never judge a brief as being crazy. I, I judge a brief as being that's my assignment and I have to do it. And I, f- I feel kind of the same way about classical music, whether it's Bach or Brahms or anybody in there. Like there's a reason this music exists and there's a reason it's per- persevered for you know hundreds of years that it still lives and people still do this music. So there's something in it for me to glean something from. So um, it really is like the foundation, e- even if you think people, it's like, you know, going through like, I remember I've read about like, with jazz like apparently like there are places where even mozart got close to jazz chords it's like and maybe Uh it's just in dissonances Uh and it's just interesting that when we're reading like wow i mean and i'm not enough of a musicologist to be able to find that myself but it's it's interesting about that like so much of the foundation of everything is still coming out of classical or it's a reaction to it I guess. And some of those classical composers are amazingly uh, adventurous. There's this famous Mozart, uh, I think, no, it's not a sonata. It's a, it's like a minuet uh, that is, it's crazy dissonance. And you listen to it today and you're like, that could almost be a 20th century piece. very adventurous even though the stereotypical Mozart that it gets played a hundred times too many too many times so often it it's got a very simplistic classical mm-hmm. ethos to it but he himself was was quite the the trickster Beethoven too yeah 
but it's it's a sort of like you know dovetail the classical music into you know music for media as far as you know film tv mm-hmm. um you know i've always found it fascinating that you know the with the early movie movie music basically like the how <laughs> i've always wondered like how is it that the post-romantic era of tchaikovsky and rachmaninoff and you know, even Wagner to a certain extent, like how did that become the model for movie music, but it didn't like Baroque music wasn't there or, or when it was like the classical era, it's like that didn't, you know, and I just wonder if it's just like the flexibility of a post-romantic kind of sound and style. Like that's why, you know, that worked better in movies, but it's, Hmm. it's an esoteric topic, but it's just, you know, it's an interesting one to think about. Um, I, you know, I don't know the answer off the top of my head, except that it may have just been the natural evolution of society and culture as it happened, as it unfolded on this planet. Um, you know, if you think about people like Bach and Mozart, they they were really masters of marrying a technical uh, concept. Let's say Bach's fugues. He's writing these amazingly complicated fugues um, based on a theme, and then he's doing... Uh, He's writing all these parts that make this piece of music that you and I can sit back and say, oh, that's art. And it is art. Um, it expresses something very unique. And to him, it's, it was probably, how can I develop this theme so that I fulfill all the rules of writing this complex fugue? I mean, I'm using, I'm, I'm writing a classical fugue here, but make it music. Like actually make it a listenable piece. Yeah. And I think Mozart in the same way. He's expressing himself... But he's also within, um, he, he works within some technical bounds, some limitations, sonata form or symphony form or, or things like that. But, but then by the time you get to the romantics, you, I think you, in some cases you get to a place where uh, the composers feel free to abandon some of the technical structures, some, not all, um, and just go into, okay, what can I express in this piece of music? Um, and it could be impressionism, like you uh-huh. know, WC, like I'm going to, you know, uh, what does the C sound like? And exactly. it got more programmatic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. it sure did. All through the romantics. There was definitely the shift towards what can I express? Not just um, I'm going to write a new fugue, I'm going to write a new sonata, a new, a new symphony, but what can I express as a human being? Also, I mean, early classical music uh, was written for patrons. In the, in the Romantic period, it starts to shift to the compo- it's composer centric. Composers who just they want to write this piece and they write this piece. Right. <sighs> Maybe that's a partial answer to your question. I mean, yeah, no, that makes sense. It, it's it's just fascinating, you know. It, and like, I guess it's just sort of happy circumstance that film was developing, you know, not too long after that. Um, but it's also interesting when there are other newer concert classical forms coming up in the 20th century mm-hmm. that kind of got applied to some movies, and then like it just never really stuck. You know, there's certain avant-garde techniques which, you know, people wouldn't even go and listen to in a concert hall worked in certain film genres. But then even that sort of fell out of favor. Um, Mm -hmm. That just didn't really stick as much as I thought that was kind of fascinating. Well, the 20th century got very experimental early on. I mean, you've got um, the early works of Schoenberg and and people of his school. They, They got so experimental that... Now to a lay person, a lay person is probably asking, but is this still music? <laughs> and it is because it's still made up of notes and, and instruments that we call music. But it, let's just say we started to lose the lay people at that point. Yeah. Because because music started to become like, how far can we take all this stuff? To the point where eventually it's like, well, is silence music? Is, right. is a complete piece of silence music? <laughs> Maybe. Sure. Everyone can have their own answer to that. Um, but 
you're not going to put a piece like 433 in a movie as a soundtrack because it makes no sense. Right. Um, at that point, it's not music. And you can you can stick Schoenberg in in a film or Schoenberg style music. But it's going to have a very specific effect on that picture. And uh, let's just say 99 times out of 100, that's probably not what the picture deserves. Yeah, I mean, unless you're Kubrick and you're dropping some of these <laughs> these wacky things that are just right. textures and sound right. mass into, you know, 2001 or The Shining. Well, we have an entire genre of that. Horror, horror yeah. music can can adapt many of those techniques. So it's not to say it can't work, but going back to your original question, you know, maybe that's why romantic, post-romantic approaches started to find a home because they can start to find a home in media music and film in particular first they can express emotions they're accessible to the layman um they're not overly distant unless you need them to be um maybe that's why that's where film music started yeah so on that topic of uh i guess the classical music and sort of you know its influence on film um i wanted to ask you about uh your work with the academy of scoring arts sure as as president mm -hmm. um I know that you guys have been, you know, basically kind of organizing these studies of different classical works. Um, and what was your thought process behind, you know, doing that? Because I've attended some of these and they're really fantastic. And so what was it that generated the idea that I, you know, that you wanted to have, you know, people come together and then kind of dig into these works, you know, on mm -hmm. all the layers, you know, uh, yeah, well, first of all, it was not my idea. Um, this oh. group was founded by... <laughs> I was going to give you credit. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I do not deserve that. It was a, a genius named Ron Jones, a veteran um, Hollywood composer, orchestrator. Oh, I love Ron Jones. Yeah, yeah. You, I'm sure you know lots of his work. Fam oh, my Family gosh. Guy and stuff like that. Yeah. He was the originator of this, and he wanted a place where um, fellow professionals like him could just sit and study some music for a while and eat some food together and, and uh, have a community. Um, he was very aware that uh, in this day and age, many of us are retreating to one-man studios, one-woman one studios. Um, we spend increasing amount of times in isolation, and there's just less of the musical community than there ever was. That's what he wanted to remedy, so that's why he initiated it at a restaurant, which is where the group still meets today. Um, and uh, we do monthly meetings. Ron, Ron retired a few years ago and moved up to the Pacific Northwest, but he's still very much involved in this kind of, uh, of, of a thing. Um, so I, I, I was on the board and um, I, I'd been involved in just helping these events continue. And I mean, pretty much the same vision continues today. We'll take a piece of music, um, either classical or increasingly, we're also looking at film music and just start start looking through it I and mean, even jazz too what was the, the yes. duke ellington uh one recently was yes very that's, that's another offshoot of of the academy oh, okay. is into we, we call it the ellington study which is uh spearheaded by scott healy uh amazing jazz composer and player he's a great pianist um so he'll just look at jazz jazz composers um jazz works he loves the history of jazz and he's deep in the theory of it so um he he can explain that stuff and he has the background to uh, really plummet steps so scott's leading the ellington studies um i or another board member or a visiting guest will lead the, we call them the ravel studies ravel because ravel is pretty much revered as one of the finest orchestrators who ever lived um so in the almost 10 years that the group hasn't been going uh, there have been score studies on Ravel himself. Uh, we've done Star Wars. We've done um, Rite of Spring. Uh, last year we did The Planets. Um, West Side Story was another popular one. And then in between those, we've done lots of one-offs where just for a month we'll study a single score, a single movie. Um, 
I can't believe I missed the Ride of Spring one. <laughs> Ride of Spring was a long time ago, but it, but it was... Well, I still wish I could go back in time. Oh, gosh, fascinating. <laughs> I learned the Ride of Spring when I was about 16 years old um, because I was going, I was auditioning for Curtis, which is uh, a very prestigious, a, a Juilliard level school uh, that um, Bernstein went to, uh, Copeland went to, and it was right across the bridge from where I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, so I was auditioning for Curtis and their audition requirements at, at the time where you had to conduct... A section of the Rite of Spring and a section of Beethoven's Sixth. Wow. Uh, neither of which I knew at that point. So I, I mean, I still have my score to this day. It's like completely marked up in pencil and highlighter and and all that stuff. So, yeah, Rite of Spring is a an epic score and actually particularly interesting in our in this conversation about media music mm -hmm. um, because that really pushed the boundaries of tonality and uh, expressivity, expressiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, to create something new that hadn't been done before. Every time you open a score like that, or any of these masterpieces that we look at, there's always new things to learn, compositionally, orchestrationally. Um, there's so much to think about in terms of how did it end up being this way? Why did he choose this way or that way? Um, and and he, it was, he was someone that, uh, I mean, I, he wasn't, you know, I know that it was, it was such a game changer as far as orchestral music and how it's... I think it made a greater stamp on the world of film music than it did on concert <laughs> classical, uh -huh. um, because it seemed like in the concert world, everyone's like, oh, that was interesting, and let's get back to something more right. tonal or whatever. But film music was like, hey, I got to have more of that. Because uh -huh. uh, for me and other fans, and like we know like Stravinsky was the benchmark for you know, like some of our favorite film composers. And so right. when I go back to that, that's to me is like the, the source. You know, as, as such a you know huge fan of Jerry Goldsmith, I'm like he was fully admitted that he was Stravinsky, Bartok, Webern, and some of these other guys. That that was where he. And it's like it's going back to the source mm. and seeing like how did he stack those notes and rhythmically how complex it is. And yeah. it's just, you know. Yeah, but I don't think he knew it at the time. No, Rite right yeah. of Spring is if I, if I remember right, 1914, 1915, somewhere in there. I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it predates film music. He he could have had no idea. No, what it yeah. was going to become. Same thing when we were studying the Holst, the Holst planets last year. Mm -hmm. um, the Holst planets became a template for a yeah. lot of music, not the least of which Star Wars mm -hmm. um, has you know many references to it. Um, but then I think that Holst wrote this in a time that predated moving picture. Um, it it predated almost any modern sense that we have of looking at the planets, and um, he didn't think of the planets astronomically like we do we think of nasa images and pictures of saturn and all that mm -hmm. he thought of it astrologically hmm. so his mindset was complete i i find it even hard to wrap my head around that mindset because i know the modern planets and you know i've right. seen all the pictures he's thinking of mars and as a character he's thinking of mercury as a character exactly. and how do i express that person's character you know or that astrological exactly. character and in modern times we we have a visual component. We have a we have a a connection to it because now we've we've been to the moon. We're thinking about going to Mars. You know, these are things that are would have been unthinkable hundred years ago. Yeah, but it's it's and just thinking about that time as far as like classical classical music moving into a more programmatic, expressive like mm -hmm. like you said, I'm not writing a fugue or a sonata. I'm trying to express an idea or a location or, in this case, the planet Mars, but the astrological sign and its attributes.
The mission statement of the organization, as Ron founded it, uh, deals with the way it deals with the marrying of music to visual media, um, to film, TV, uh, commercials, now games. We've, we've had several game composers come through and talk about their music and their process. Um, so I'm always mindful of that. Like, we can study classical music as long as the classical music has some relevance to what's used in media. So that's why we'll do things like the, the planets. We're about to study start a study on Debussy's La Mer, starting literally tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also love to get into films more. Um, we have some amazing, uh, some of the greatest composers in the world that we haven't been able to tackle yet, which we really like to. Goldsmith would certainly be one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we have done uh, some John Williams before. We did Star Wars and we did Catch Me If You Can. Oh, wow. Catch Me If You Can was a, was a single, uh, a one-off meeting, but that was enough just to get a flavor of that, that jazz. It's a jazz score. Yeah. Um, it was fascinating. It, that's one where I had read he had written the piano parts to sound improvisatory, but they weren't. Yes. He wrote it. So it sounds like it's, yeah, improvising, and yet he wrote every yep. note. Yep. And that saxophone part, too, also oh, pre-written. Okay. Yeah. You know, we've been talking the entire time about first classical music and now over to film and media music, but music assumes a different role when it's written to or for picture. Because now it, it's subservient to the picture. The picture is the master and the music has to fit around it. This is different than classical music where um, classical music is the is the destination. Mm-hmm. The symphony or whatever piece it was, it's meant to be a standalone piece. And, and it wasn't conceived of to be married with anything else. So... That is that is the the big uh, conundrum in in media music is how can I how can a composer write a piece that serves the picture and is still a great piece of music even heard apart from it and I mean John Williams accomplishes that supremely people listen to his scores do concerts of his, his scores right. all the time even uh, separated from the picture and you can still appreciate it as great music. Yeah, and it's I don't know whether it's just a matter. I mean, it's it's skill, it's talent, it's it's somehow um, having the ability as a, of a dramatist to work in the picture, but then also the chops, I guess, to make that piece still musical. Yes. Um, I, I don't know what kind of yeah. It's yeah, it's a weird mix of things, but yeah, that seems to be the the the. I, I'm trying to think of the right uh, analogy for it, but that's sort of the golden goose i guess it's <laughs> that's not a bad that's not a bad term because um any lesser composer who sits down to write for picture and tries to compose a symphony like they might have in the classical music world will nine times out of sh- ten be shot down by a director who says oh that's too complex it gets in the way um it doesn't fit the picture you didn't serve the picture so how can you write great music to picture that survives past the picture Mm-hmm. And we have had some great composers who've done that, and, but that's that's the that's the balancing act. You, with music for media, you always have to serve the picture. The picture will always tell you; it will tell you the arc of the piece, mm-hmm. places you can you can swell and places you have to lay back. Um, yeah, so. it is sort of that predefined path that that you have to follow, mm-hmm. um, but. I guess it'd be like following a libretto, I guess, if you, or, you know, in a yeah. way I'm trying, you know, it's like, yeah. cause I, sometimes people make the, the analogy of writing for, a, you know, a ballet or, you know, or an opera or some sort of story where everyone knows this story. We're going to do an operatic version or we're going to do a ballet version. Like, well, we know the story has to go and this guy has to die here. This character has to fall in love. Right. So I can't just write something that doesn't go that direction in, in a weird way. I guess it's kind of like that, you yeah, know, but it's, it's absolutely like that. And those arcs are entirely different than traditional classical music forms. Um, sonata form is probably not going to work. 
Um, you know, another type, type of form we use a lot is song form, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, that you know, many um, pop songs would be written to. Um, that form is not going to work to picture either because that that's another form of development where you have different structures, different pieces of a song that's, that come together to support the song as a whole. And yeah. you usually have a hook in the chorus and things like that. Well, if you tried to stick uh, you know, an entire song into a movie, it probably wouldn't work. You would have vocals coming in at the wrong time and uh, you know sections of the song peaking when mm-hmm. when the movie's not yeah so traditional forms go out the window when you write for media um, you discover new forms and then yeah. within the constraints of whatever the media is you find ways to um, to weave your themes your development in and and support where the picture's going so what do you think about the current trend that there's more and more concerts of, around film music, like like the complete score to picture and all that kind of stuff? I mean, is like that's something as a kid I never thought would happen because, you know, but I know it does sort of keep the orchestra, you know, present, you know, and, yeah. and, and current. Um, I mean, is this sort of an exciting thing that you see? Is it, you know, that... Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a, it's a way to um, enjoy some of this amazing music that has been written and in a new way because we're we're recreating it um you know especially with these concerts to picture um you know i can sit at home and i can watch these movies on on netflix or whatever but it's different when there's real live players there moving real air um it's 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 not an mp3 in my ipod anymore it's there's something very immediate about it yeah. So yeah, I think it's wonderful. That is pretty and, and it's an opportunity to, to rediscover, um, you know, some of these works. I came to film music relatively late in life because I came through, like I told you, like a, a pop path, and then a classical path, and then um, a studio work path, and then finally over to media music um, for the last decade and a half. Um, so I feel like I'm I'm rediscovering some of these movies, which I may have seen as a kid or, or you know in my twenties or thirties, but now I'm looking at them as as a scholar of them, I'm looking at them as pieces of art and I'm appreciating the music uh, in a way that I didn't when I was a kid when they first came out. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. it's great. Yeah, it. no, that's awesome. I mean, and I guess does it give you other like things in your career that you're like, I, I guess, is there anything like, and, and maybe this is like not because you seem like you, you really take in and absorb everything that's presented to you and you just sort of ingest it. But is, is there is there any dream project or genre that you're like, I want to do a horror movie. I want to do a, um, you know, an epic or anything? Is it, or is it just like it's all open and you know, it it's all open. I mean, I have decades of music in me, left to right, and um, I, you know, I I would love to stretch more in an epic direction. I feel like my sensibilities, my my tonal vocabularies, uh, probably fit drama the best. My, um, it, that's that's who I am as a musician. So. Gosh, anything in dramas or epics, uh, I would love to move in that direction. Sci-fi fits naturally into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have done horror before. Uh, that I've kind of put in the same category as hip-hop in that it's something I can do, but it's not necessarily native to me, which sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes I would bring something to a genre that's not my native genre that is not what um, you know a natural horror composer might have brought to it. But um, yeah, really come at it from a completely yeah, out of yeah. left field idea, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. So I find, I mean, we started this conversation at uh, Rhapsody in Blue, which is a mashup. <laughs> and I find that that concept of mashups, that's that's where music is going nowadays. Now we're finding all kinds of unexpected genres used in unique ways. Mm-hmm. At the time we're talking, you know, we got this interesting resurgence of like 80s and 90s songs, which make their way into trailers when they're redone in a dark and creepy way. And that's like a, it's a brilliant way to um, reimagine these classic songs um, and take a second look at their lyrics. And suddenly they mean something entirely different when you, when you spin the arrangement 180 degrees the other way. Uh, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, the, the mashup culture, I, I sometimes think of it as a remix culture as yeah, well. And, uh-huh. and that, that's where we're sort of like remixing what we've got as our past into, you know, our current. Yeah. Um, that is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looking at the lyrics in another way. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's so interesting because I think it multiplies the possibilities. You know, if someone hands me a drama film and says, just score traditional drama, well, I can write a drama score. But 
when, once I start bringing in elements that are from other genres or even other cultures, suddenly uh, we can we can do a lot more with this. Like we can multiply the the artistic experience of um, of what this thing can be. So not every project is right for that, but uh, it's interesting to play with and think about, mm -hmm. and even to experiment with unorthodox influences that maybe aren't the first go-to, oh, this is how you score a drama, let's just do it that way, but to try and experiment with different things that um, can make it something special, it's something memorable, it's something iconic. Hopefully. Yeah. Take yeah. some chances. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be, you know, the tried and true in mm -hmm. a way. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Um, if, uh, if anyone wanted to, to find you on, uh, on social media or out in a, you know, out there, um, can you, uh, let people know where, yeah, where to be found? Uh, my website, daviddoss.com and all the social medias at, at David Doss. Um, yeah, I, I love, uh, you know, with the work of the Academy, um, I love being part of the broader community. You know, I go back to my studio and I write, which is a, a solitary thing generally, especially at the writing stage. Um, although not always, it's fun to collaborate. But it is nice to be part of the larger community. So I think social media is important for that reason. Um, and, and things like the Academy of Scoring Arts, too, because it's a chance to get out of our studios and to actually see each other face to face, have a meal and talk about the craft and figure out some things, whether they're musical or business or um, or maybe they're about film. But um, I look at that as a form of my continuing education. You yeah, know, I'm not in college anymore. Um, but once a month, at least, I can stop and I can study someone greater than me and get some, get, get some nuggets of things that I can take back and I can make part of my, um, my palette. And I guess people can also seek out the Academy of Scoring Arts online yep. as well. That's the academyscoringarts.org and everything's posted up there. Um, the Academy is actually about to pivot uh, into a membership model, which shouldn't scare away anybody, but we've been taping all these things for, for the past several years. So uh, later this year, we hope to be able to launch the online membership where anybody who wants to become a member can access all that back catalog of studies um, and listen and study on their own time, in addition to the, the events, which we'll continue to host the way we do. Today. Okay. So, um, That's fantastic. So we're really excited about that because all this archive stuff is, um, there's lots of stuff I'm itching to go back and study that's already been covered. Same here. I guess I should go back and see if the Rite of Spring stuff is there. There's um, there's at least a couple of Rite of Spring studies that are that are there. Yeah, and that's more. so amazing. Wow. Uh, well, thanks again very much, David. My I'm pleasure. glad we were able to, to talk me. today. Yeah. yeah. So this wraps up my conversation with composer David Doss. I'd like to again thank David for participating and sharing his background, his insights, uh, experiences and stories from working in the industry, and also his thoughts on both classical and film music. You can find his website at daviddoss.com. That's David, D-A-V-I-D-D-A-S as in Sam, dot com. And of course, I want to thank everyone for listening today. Um, as always, I hope you found it both uh, informative and entertaining. Uh, and also, I apologize for those glitches in the sound you heard from time to time, so I don't expect that to be happening again. Music heard in today's episode included excerpts from Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin, Mozart Minuet in D Major, K355, La Mer by Claude Debussy, String Quartet No. 4 by Arnold Schoenberg, the Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, The Planets by Gustav Holtz, and Catch Me If You Can by John Williams. So before I sign off for this episode, I wanted to mention uh, briefly um, a film music related book that I've been reading uh, lately. Uh, it's called Music to My Years, uh, Life and Love Between the Notes, uh, as told by Artie Kane to Marion Blue and Joanne Kane. So Artie Kane, uh, he's actually one of the most well-renowned uh, session musicians in the industry, uh, specifically on piano, um, and along with being an accomplished composer and conductor. So this is Artie Kane's memoir, basically uh, charting his life um, from growing up in Ohio in the 30s and 40s uh, as a child prodigy uh, to his time playing piano uh, pretty much anywhere and everywhere, including uh, like Holiday on Ice shows in the, uh, in the 50s. Um, and eventually, uh, his life after he moved to LA, uh, and when he started earning his keep as a session player for both film and TV scores, 
Um, and also his time playing uh, in sessions with uh, pop artists of the day, such as Frank Sinatra, uh, most notably on uh, Sinatra's Strangers in the Night album from the mid-60s. Um, he played the organ on that, uh, the, uh, the version of All or Nothing at All, a very popular uh, Sinatra tune, but specifically from that Strangers in the Night album. Um, and everything in between in terms of his personal life, uh, trials and successes, um, marriages, children, divorces. Uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty much a very, uh, open and honest book, um, which, you know, which also very, you know, was very enlightening. Um, I found it interesting as I'd seen his name, uh, so many times in the, in the credits on soundtrack albums in the fine print, uh, if they printed up or included a list of the musicians that played in the orchestra on the score, um, I would often see Artie Kane listed as playing piano. Um, and then I re- remember seeing his name as composer on popular TV shows uh, such as Wonder Woman starring Linda Carter, uh, The Love Boat, and uh, Vegas, and Matlock. Uh, and then I remember starting to see his name listed as conductor on scores uh, starting in the 90s. Um, one of the first most notable times I remember uh, seeing it his, as conductor was on Jurassic Park in 1993. Williams wasn't able to conduct the whole score, um, so Artie Kane actually uh, conducted a number of cues for that. So I remember seeing his name in the credits there. And then I saw Artie Kane's name as conductor on scores composed by Mark Shaman and Danny Elfman and James Newton Howard. So I found it fascinating to, to read about his, his time playing in the orchestras here in L.A., um, the stories, uh, the other session players, uh, the social circles, uh, the agents and the parties, and, and also those who inspired him in the industry. Um, you know, books published on movie music uh, you know, were few and far between for so long. There have been more published in, the re- in recent years, but it's, it's not often where uh, a book will focus on a specific composer or even one who is a session player. Um, a lot of the movie music books published are sort of overall about the, uh, the art form and how it's applied. Uh, so this was kind of a rarity to have it be so specific. Uh, but I really enjoyed getting a peek into the scoring stage, actually, from Artie Kane's perspective uh, at both the piano and the podium. Uh, again, this book is called uh, Music to My Years, Life and Love Between the Notes, as told by Artie Kane to Marion Blue and Joanne Kane. Um, and it's published by Amphora Edition. So if you're interested, uh, certainly check it out. close out, I'm playing some of Artie Kane's music that he composed for the Wonder Woman series from the 1970s. Uh, this is music that's actually been recently made available on CD, I think within the last year or so, um, in a three-disc set from La La Land Records. So definitely, if you're interested in music from the Wonder Woman series, Artie Kane's music, plus the, uh, the very famous theme by Charles Fox and uh, music composed for uh, episodes for that, that uh, the three seasons of that show, you can find it. Uh, on this set, uh, highlights from the series uh, from Law Online Records. So if you'd like to send any comments or questions to the show, you can email me at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com. And also on Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle. And finally on Twitter at score2settlepod. So that's score, the number two, settle, pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, um, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening.